Good morning. Um, can I just check you can uh, hear me up in the gods up there? Yeah, very good. The, um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce uh, a very distinguished international uh, servant and international leader, both, uh, Angel Gurria, the Secretary General of the OECD. He's been Secretary General uh, since 2006, so 10 years, and he's about, or he's beginning um, another five-year term, um, re-elected with huge acclaim by the members of the OECD. Very long uh, practical and intellectual economic experience and financial experience. He's been um, the foreign minister and the finance minister, both of Mexico. He's been head of trade and development banks in Mexico. He was involved in the NAFTA negotiations, involved in Mexico's accession to the OECD, and uh, going still further back in time, he had a very distinguished career inside the Mexican Treasury. This is somebody who knows about the international system and how it works, and indeed particularly trade deals, um, because he's negotiated big ones. Uh, he's a great friend of the UK. Uh, indeed, he was a student in the UK at Leeds University, an economics uh, student in the 1970s, and he likes to remind us all that those were the periods, 73, 74, when Leeds United was at its peak. And whilst he... championship twice. So he, uh, he's associated with winners. Uh, Leeds' decline can be charted from when he graduated from Leeds University. But no, we're, downhill ever since. But we're here to talk about uh, subjects of uh, still greater importance, which is uh, around the decision on Brexit. It's a very important statement. We're honoured that, Angel, that you've come here to the London School of Economics to make that statement. And we look, very, look forward very much to listening to you. You're enormously welcome. Thank you. Dear friends, um, this, uh, these copies of the um, report that are being uh, passed around, they are available, and also of my own speech. Uh, so uh, you don't have to be taking uh, notes very carefully about all the meaningful things I'm going to say. Uh, it's a great pleasure, uh, Lord Stern, dear friends, to be here at the LSE to share the perspective of the OECD on the possible economic repercussions of Brexit. The decision on Brexit is one which will impact on generations to come. So it is fitting that we are in a place devoted to forming future British, European, and global leaders. The stakes are high, and understandably, people are in search of objective, dispassionate information and analysis on which to base their decision. That's where the OECD comes in. At the OECD, we advocate making policy decisions using evidence-based analysis. We advocate policies that improve the well-being of people, and we advocate national policies that take due account of spillovers on the rest of the world. The UK is one of our founding members, 
and one of our most active members. If it's important for the UK, it is important for the OECD. Besides, an event of the scale of Brexit has implications not only for the well-being of every British citizen, but also for people across the EU, the OECD, and beyond. Thus, at the OECD, we are duty-bound to assess the possible consequences and flag the risks associated with this decision. I should also say, setting aside my OECD hat for a moment, that I have my personal reasons for joining this debate. As uh, Lord Stern mentioned a moment ago, I came to Britain for the first time in the early 70s as a student at Leeds University. It was a challenging time. Um, minor strikes, three-day working days, energy crisis, electricity blackouts, and I remember vividly having to take baths together. <laughs> I mean, with whoever you chose to take baths together. <laughs> my, my, my wife and I still take baths together from that time. You know, we, <laughs> 42 years later. Um, so... Um, you might want to move on at this point. <laughs> now, I then came back uh, this time to London uh, in 76 to 78 as Mexico's permanent delegate to the International Coffee Organization. So I've been a witness of the evolution of this country for more than 40 years now. I've witnessed firsthand the dramatic transformation of this country, the cosmopolitan Britain that I see today, where my son and his wife live, work, pay taxes, and raise and enjoy their own children, bears little resemblance to the inward-looking society I first encountered before the UK joined the European Union. I'll focus today on the economic aspects of Britain's membership of the European Union. No time to dwell on the EU's role in preserving peace in Europe and spreading it around the world as was recognized when the European Union was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012. Not the occasion either to elaborate on the EU's leadership role in environmental issues and their crucial contribution to the success of COP21. And here I'd like to say that uh, Nick Stern, uh, who kindly invited me here today, is the embodiment of the influence that the UK had on that very uh, success that we had in Paris last December. And nor do I need to belabor on the EU's virtues as perhaps the greatest exponent of soft power in the world. Neighboring countries queue up to join the European Union, drawn by the example of its stable, peaceful, prosperous, democratic societies. Now certainly no one would claim that the EU is a finished product. The scaffolding is not easy on the eye. But the structures being built behind the scaffolding become a source of admiration and collective strength once the scaffolding is removed. Sometimes it takes time. You know, you can accuse the EU of many things, but not of being very fast. Now, being part of this constant work in progress, of this worthy 
and visionary pro project with its vocation for permanent change, reinvention, and institutional innovation makes the UK stronger. Why would anyone want to give up this truly win-win proposition? Brexit, on the contrary, could threaten both the unity of the UK because of Scotland's expressed desire to remain part of the EU, as well as the unity of the EU itself, because of the likelihood of other countries believing that there is merit in following the UK's example. Now, being a member of the European Union has been good for the UK. Since the United Kingdom joined the European Union in 73, its GDP per capita has doubled. That this is not only more than the other major uh, EU members, it's, only more, it's also more than the English-speaking countries that are not in the EU. It's more than the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And there's another English-speaking example, Ireland. They joined the EU at the same time as the UK. The GDP per capita has quadrupled since 1973. So... The evidence over the past four decades suggests that far from holding back growth, harnessing the potential of the European single market enhances living standards. Let me now turn to the future and to the question the British people will have to answer in two months' time. The Brexit referendum, a taxing question. The question posed in the referendum, and I quote, should the UK remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union, is a taxing one. Taxing in the sense that its consequences are complex and permanent, not only for the UK, but also for the rest of the EU and beyond. So the responsibility borne by British voters on June 23rd is very serious indeed. It will be an act of intergenerational responsibility. But also taxing, because Brexit would, rather like a tax, hit the well-being in the pockets of UK citizens. Unlike most taxes, however, this one will not finance the provision of public services or close the fiscal gap. The Brexit tax would be a pure debt weight loss, a cost incurred with no economic benefit. And this tax would not be a one-off levy. Britons would be paying it for many years. The OECD has estimated the scale of this Brexit tax for UK households. The details of the relevant criteria, the calculations, are included in the report that we have distributed to you this morning. Now, we are aware of the analysis that the UK Treasury produced last week for the same purpose. The LSE's Center for Economic Performance has also produced excellent research on the matter. There's also the report commissioned by the Confederation of British Industries. Now, at the end of this report that we're distributing today, there's a comparison of the four calculations. There are, of course, some differences in the numbers 
coming out of these different efforts. Sometimes it's a matter of different time horizons, of variations in assumptions about post-Brexit trading arrangements. Different models can be employed. Uh, research findings drawn from different sources lead to different estimated costs. Um, but the results are quantitatively similar and mostly they are qualitatively the same. The UK would be worse off under Brexit. The UK would be worse off under Brexit. And frankly, I think our estimates are too cautious. All, you know, our experts who are here today with us, um, they like to uh, be very prudent, be very serious, be very credible, and they're right. But I think uh, the different estimates that we have from different sources are all on erring on the side of caution. For one thing, they focus entirely on future effects, whereas, in fact, the first payments of the Brexit tax are already being made. Now, just this morning, a moment ago, the Office for National Statistics announced the lowest quarterly GDP growth figures since 2012, 0.4% quarter-on-quarter growth. Already in the previous quarter, business investment was weak as the Brexit issue gained prominence. Brexit costs can also be seen in financial markets. Since the autumn, the pound has weakened against the euro and the dollar, and the cost of insuring against exchange rate volatility has risen significantly. The costs are piling up, and we're still two months away from the referendum. Now, the OECD's estimate about the economic effects of Brexit are in near-term effects and then the longer-term effects. That's the difference that we have with the Treasury analysis also. Our analysis looks at the effect of a decision to leave the EU of these two horizons. Now, from the moment of a Brexit vote, that's 23rd of June 2016, until the arrangements for divorced are definitely settled, that's years later, there would be heightened economic uncertainty with, of course, damaging consequences. Brexit would lead to a sell-off of assets, a sharp rise in risk premium. Consumer confidence would fall, as would business confidence and investment, thus holding back growth. Now, were the UK to leave the EU, it would have to negotiate new trading relationships. Brexit would mean that the UK would not only give up full and automatic access to the single market, but would also lose the benefit of trade agreements covering 53 markets that it currently enjoys and which it helped shape as part of the EU. Supporters of Brexit argue that the UK would actually achieve a more liberal trade regime outside the EU, 
that it enjoys now. This is a delusion. There's no objective reason why it would and why it could. Bilateral and regional trade agreements take years to negotiate. They absorb substantial energy and resources. The UK would be starting from scratch. The first priority would be to negotiate with the rest of the European Union, which accounts for nearly half of UK exports. Now, who would you be facing on the other side of the table? You would be facing an embittered, freshly rejected, much larger trading partner with a very clear incentive to make Brexit costly. Just in case somebody would be thinking about following on the same path. Just in case. So it's not only because of the reaction to the UK leaving, but mostly, I would say, because of the signaling system for every single one of the remaining members of the EU. Now, regarding non-EU trading partners, what can I tell you? President Obama reminded us last week, the UK on its own would not be exactly their top priority for negotiating trade deals or granting generous trade concessions. The rewards for potential partners would have considerably shrunk for giving these generous trade concessions. That, that, that came out rather elegant, didn't it? <laughs> um, taking into account the effects of heightened uncertainty and the less favorable trading environment while new arrangements are negotiated. We put the Brexit tax at around 2,200 pounds per household by 2020. Just remember, the decision, two years to leave, and then the thing starts. And 2019, in terms of negotiating, you will see in the book that it takes two, three, four years, depending on the issues that are being negotiated and how wide they, 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 they cover. So um, it's, that's why we did it to 2020 and then to 2030. Over the longer term, the supply side of the British economy would also be negatively affected by Brexit. Without full access to the single market, the attractiveness, the lure of the UK, would, which currently receives the largest inflows of foreign direct investment in Europe, would wane. Some foreign businesses that set up here to access the European market could even decide to relocate. The same would apply to many British companies that are multinational and that would use the UK as a trampoline for the rest of Europe. If they can't do that anymore, then they would relocate or not locate here originally. The negative impact on net FDI would hit total investment, not only foreign, but also domestic investment. Innovation would be affected, productivity would be reduced, and would also aggravate the adverse trade effects, which I alluded to a moment ago. Now bear in mind also that well over 2 million UK citizens benefit greatly 
from the freedom to live, to work and study anywhere in the EU. Europe is now their bigger uh, field, their bigger shell. These are some of the freedoms that we should not take for granted in the case of Brexit. This is particularly relevant for those who already see yourselves, yourselves, as citizens of Britain, as citizens of Europe, and as citizens of the world. That would be put at jeopardy by Brexit. Less investment, reduce flows of goods and services, reduce flows of people, costlier credit, lower exposure to ideas, lower exposure to skills across borders, would ultimately undermine productivity and the long-run economic capacity of the UK economy. We estimate that in a Brexit scenario, GDP per household in 2030 would be lower than the baseline, that means staying, by at least 3,200 pounds and up to 5,000 pounds in the most pessimistic case. Now, while no one knows precisely what the cost would be, what is striking about our estimates and those produced by the other institutions is that all the numbers under a Brexit case are negative. The best outcome under Brexit is still worse than remaining. And the worst outcomes are very bad indeed. Very expensive. The Brexit tax just gets bigger. We see no economic upside for the UK whatsoever. The only question is where on the spectrum of possible losses the outcome winds up. The bigger question is why spend so much wealth, well-being, time, energy, and talent in order to compensate the damage of a bad decision when you can simply avoid taking such decision? Why spend, why spend so much effort trying to recover the benefits of membership in a club which you don't have to leave? Some are invoking the question of sovereignty. They are invoking, however, a false dichotomy. It's not about the UK being sovereign or not. All countries take decisions on whether to pool their sovereignty, depending on the issues involved. The UK does this as a member of NATO, as a member of the OECD, as a member of the IMF, of the World Bank, of the ILO, ultimately as a member of the United Nations. So taken to the extreme, it would have to leave all these institutions in order to preserve its sovereignty. In reality, the UK, like other countries, weighs the cost of membership against the benefits of membership. Sovereignty is never lost. 
It is simply used wisely. As a part of the EU, the UK always retains the right to withdraw from the EU, but it leverages its sovereignty to shape a Europe more aligned with the interests of the United Kingdom itself. Such was the case of the deal struck by Prime Minister Cameron last February. Now, if the UK chooses to give up the opportunity to help steer Europe in the right direction, it would be doing so at its own peril. Lord Stern, dear friends, ladies and gentlemen, we recognize that economic considerations are not the only rationale for voting to remain or exit. And it is for the British people to weigh the different pros and cons. The late Lord Ralph Darendorf of this house, a German who chose to become British, who then lent his talent to run this organization for many years, said, for the resolution of conflict by negotiation and for engendering a habit of peaceful cooperation, the European Union is seen by many as a model. And Britain must be part of that model. Well, dear friends, Britain already is a part of that model. It has done well by being part of that model. And there's every reason to stay. Our conclusion is unequivocal. The UK is much stronger as a part of Europe. And Europe is much stronger with the UK as a driving force. There is no upside for the UK in Brexit. Only costs that can be avoided and advantages to be seized by remaining in Europe. No one should have to pay the Brexit tax. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Angel. Uh, very thoughtful, strong, clear, well-researched um, speech uh, and piece of work that underlines it. Um, I just want to underline the importance of what we're seeing today, hearing today, and the study. Um, the OECD um, is hugely respected as uh, in relation to many things, but I just want to point out one in particular, is the strength of its economics. Um, I've been Chief Economist of the World Bank. I'm a Professor of Economics at the LSE. I've been Head of the Government Economics Service. I'm President of the British Academy. We look, and I have looked, across the waterfront at who's good at this sort of thing. 
And I want to be very clear that the OECD's work is uh, of outstanding quality in the past, and uh, this work is of outstanding quality. The second thing I wanted to say about the OECD is that it's an analytical group that looks at issues and it tells hard truths to its members. It tells hard truths on tax, competition, corruption, pensions, education, health, well-being. Uh, and I could go on. Just recently it published... Uh, quite a punchy and not always pleasant reading for those of us in the UK, assessment of UK health. It can be very hard on its members, but it goes where the evidence uh, takes it. That, I think, is extremely important, not only the quality, but also its uh, independence. And I think listening to Angel Gurria today, I think we can be very clear that nobody tells OECD, and in particular nobody tells Angel Gurria <laughs> what to say. Now, uh, that being the case, the LSE has a habit of uh, intellectual interchange and assessment yeah? and uh, ideas. So we've asked um, one of our very best uh, young economists here at the LSE, uh, Tom Sampson, to say a little bit about the study, just five minutes or so. And um, he has been collaborating with... Um, Swati Dingra, Gianmarco Ottaviano, and John Van Rienen, uh, and others at the Center for Economic Performance here at the LSE. And he's one of the uh, key authors of the LSE CEP study to which Angel Gurria uh, referred. So we thought it'd be appropriate in the interests of academic discourse, uh, different perspectives, to ask Tom to say a few words. So, Tom, please. Thank you. Um, so let me start by thanking the Secretary-General for a very, both a timely and a very thought-provoking speech. Um, I had the chance to read the OECD report, which the speech is based on yesterday, um, and it's a very important contribution to the Brexit debate. Okay, make no mistake, it's, it's a very serious um, piece of analysis. It's certainly well worth reading if you get the opportunity. Um, and there are a lot of interesting details in there thinking through how Brexit might affect the UK. But the main message of the report is clear. Brexit would be bad for the UK economy. By creating new barriers between the UK and the rest of Europe, it would lower trade, lower investment, and reduce UK GDP. And this is a finding that reinforces what we've heard from various other sources during the past few weeks. Treasury, the IMF, the CBI, even President Obama has weighed in. It's also consistent with what we've concluded from our own research on the subject here at LSE. Of course, as with any issue, there is scope for debate about exactly how bad Brexit would be. I've seen credible estimates that put the cost anywhere between 1% and 9.5% of UK GDP. And the OECD's estimates today fall somewhere in the middle of that range. So they're broadly representative of what other studies are predicting. Okay. Um, but certainly, you know, as someone who spends a, a lot of my time immersed in kind of academic economic debates, what I find really striking about Brexit is this unusually broad consensus among economists on this issue. Brexit would be a self-inflicted wound on the UK, and from an economic perspective, it should clearly be avoided. 
Now, I'd like to focus my... I'm going to be brief, but just focus my remarks on a couple of aspects of the report that I thought were particularly interesting. If we, if we think about what happens after Brexit, the aftermath of Brexit, you can think of there as being kind of two stages. An initial stage during which the UK's exit from the EU and its future relations with the EU and with other countries are going to be renegotiated. And then a second stage after these new agreements have come into effect. And most of the existing studies of Brexit focus on this second stage, on trying to understand the long-run consequences of Brexit for UK living standards. Now, this is part of the OECD report, but what I think is particularly nice and new in this report is it also makes a serious attempt to grapple with the shorter-run consequences of Brexit mm -hmm. and to give us a detailed picture of how Brexit might affect the British economy in the next three or four years. Right? And certainly, I think from this, we get some real new insight into what Brexit could mean for us in the next year, the next two years. I just want to highlight a couple of the numbers that were in the report. Following Brexit, GDP, is forecast, GDP growth is forecast to be half a percentage point lower, both in 2017 and 2018, and a full one and a half percentage points lower in 2019, which would be the year after the UK actually formally leaves the EU. Right? So these are very large numbers. The Office for Budget Responsibility is currently projecting annual GDP growth of around 2% per year during this period. So it would be a substantial dec decline in growth. And this would be accompanied by kind of other unwelcome economic side effects. The report is forecasting an increase in the unemployment rate by the end of the decade of half a million people and an increase in the budget deficit following Brexit that would require the government to borrow £16 billion more per year than it already does. So these are just some of the numbers from the report, but they nicely illustrate what's at stake in this referendum. I think you know, the Treasury report that was released last week uh, focused on, on the longer term. And when we're thinking about the longer term, what's going to happen in 2030, it's sometimes easy to think you know, that these are not things that necessarily concern us today. But what this report makes clear is that the UK's short-run economic well-being is also very much at stake in this debate. Yeah. And a vote in favour of exit would quickly turn uh, the short-run economic prognosis for the UK very gloomy. Uh, the second issue I want to comment on and highlight is the important role of uncertainty in this debate. Kind of discussions about Brexit, uncertainty plays a pervasive role. Uncertainty about the outcome of the referendum, uncertainty about exactly what the channels are through which Brexit would affect the UK economy, uncertainty about exactly how other EU countries would react to Brexit. And we've already heard a kind of um, from the Secretary General in his speech that there's evidence that the uncertainty about the referendum is always, already having a negative effect on UK growth by causing businesses to delay their investment and hiring decisions. But what really comes out very strongly from the report is that the biggest source of uncertainty we face is a lack of clarity over what relationship the UK would seek with its trading partners after Brexit. Not only does this make life difficult for economists such as myself, when we try to predict the effects of Brexit, but it really muddies the water for voters. If we vote to leave the EU, 
What are we voting in favour of? Would a post-Brexit Britain model itself on Singapore or on Canada, on Norway or Albania or something else entirely? It's really difficult for voters to make an informed decision on the merits of Brexit if they don't know what Brexit means. So this report is, you know, it's an important contribution to better understanding Brexit and to raising the quality of the public debate around Brexit. But if there's one thing I would like to see in the final two months of the campaign, and where I think we're still lacking a lot of information, it's to receive kind of more information about how the Leave campaign envisions a post-Brexit Britain's place in the world. That kind of uncertainty really cast a, a pal over the entire debate at the moment. But just to, some, kind of, to conclude, I really recommend everyone goes away and takes a look at this report because you'll definitely learn something. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, I would also recommend that you read the uh, LSE analysis and work done at the <laughs> Centre for Economic Performance. Um, uh, where we'll have um, about 20 minutes or so for um, questions, and uh, you can put your hand up in a moment because I'm going to take the opportunity to say a word or two at the beginning of the discussion. We should emphasise that neither Tom nor I speaks for the LSE, the LSE doesn't have a view on this. I don't, I'm president of the British Academy, but I'm not speaking for the British Academy on this. But what all three of us on this platform are speaking about is serious economic analysis and where that takes us. I want to make four points quickly. The first is that this is not a forecast, uh, neither the LSE work, nor the Treasury work, nor the OECD work, nor the CBI work, these four major studies. It's not a forecast in the conventional sense of predicting exactly where we might be or even predicting approximately where we might be 15 years from now or 10 years from now. What it is is a comparison of where we might be uh, in those 10 or 15 years from now if we stay in relative to where we might be if we go out of the leave the EU. It's a comparison. We might be, uh, have experienced strong growth. We might have experienced weak growth in the UK if we'd stayed in. But what this is saying is that whatever growth we experience when we stay in, leaving will be 5 6% or more uh, uh, worse in the sense of lower GDP. Um, this is why the language of tax is so uh, useful in this. It's not saying where you're going to be, but it's saying you're going to lose something as a result, and it's a tax with distortions and a tax with uh, no revenue. And as someone who spent his life doing public economics, that upsets me to have distorted tax with, uh, distorted tax with no revenue. So that's, it's very important to understand the methodology here. It's not a forecast in the conventional sense of saying where we'd like to be, so saying where we might be. It's the difference between that and where we would be if we left. It's a bit like the Treasury's work on the five tests, um, which uh, effectively kept us out of the euro, wisely so in uh, my view. It was that kind of analysis and uh, serious work that helped inform that decision to stay out of the euro. The second point I want to make is to re-emphasize what Angel and Tom have said, that these numbers 
are all strongly negative in their center, and they cover a range, and the whole of the range they cover is negative, uh, a loss. It's very important that this is clear. And remember, the membership fee, if you think of what we pay in net, is about a half a percent of GDP is our contribution. It's actually a bit lower, but it's that ballpark. This is a cost which is around 10 times or more that if you're talking about 5 or 6%. So the magnitude is very important to think about, and it is a very big, uh, very large cost. The third thing I wanted to... to emphasize, and this is particularly for the ladies and gentlemen of the press who are amongst us, and that is that the overwhelming balance of these assessments is a heavy economic price to pay. Look at the best universities, LSE and Warwick. Look at the best academics. The fellows of British Academy who've worked on this are clear on this magnitude and direction. If you think of the best think tanks, in their initial comments like the IFS, if you think of the CBI, and uh, if you think of the comments of the IMF, the IMF will be here. Indeed, they're arriving for their uh, Article 4 assessment, which will be published in May, and they have to take that into account, and they've already pointed to it. The G20, the finance ministers, uh, Angel Guerrero, as head of the OECD, is always there. The Bank of England, wherever you look, at a straw poll at the Royal Economic Society, the UK's best economists getting together uh, in Easter this year, overwhelming majority was uh, of the view that the economic costs are very high. Now, nobody's telling you how to vote, but they are saying that if you want to look at the economic side of the story, the overwhelming balance of serious analysis is of the kind that you've heard today. That, the overwhelming balance like that, is a fact. Everyone who's looked at that, not everyone, of course, that's always too strong, there's always somebody, but the overwhelming balance of the best economic work, whether it's in universities, in institutes, international institutions, is pointing to a heavy economic cost. However people might vote is their own choice, but it's very important that, there, that there's real awareness of that fact around the overwhelming balance of the assessment of serious economic analysis. The last point I want to make is to emphasize the caution. I think what we've heard actually is laudably cautious because you don't want to uh, be accused of over-egging the omelette. But I think it is cautious, and here's why I think it's cautious. Our modern understanding of the way in which growth happens lays greater and greater emphasis on the learning processes involved in investment. So if investment is damaged, those learning processes are damaged and growth is damaged. That is not strongly built in. It's, some of these things are there, but I'm arguing that our recent economic theory points much more strongly in that uh, direction. Secondly, we've learned since the financial crisis that shocks have long, long-lasting damage. Again, uh, there's some caution on that, although, of course, it's recognized. Thirdly, why I think it's an underestimate, and here I speak from the long experience as uh, chief economist of the EBRD and then the World Bank, policy uncertainty is very damaging to investment, and the policy uncertainty is going to go on for a long time, and it's going to be very big. Again, that's there, but I think, in my view, it's probably 
uh, stronger because they've quite understandably and laudably been cautious. And finally, uh, a point which uh, Angel Gurria made, which I'd like to underline, the EU, looking forward, has every incentive to drive a very hard bargain because the signal has to be, if they want to hold the EU together, the signal has to be that the cost of exit is high. So for those four reasons, I think that these studies are cautious. It's not that they've ignored these points. They have not ignored these points. But they've been very careful about points which I think are still stronger in terms of um, damage than the modelling has in its cautiousness embodied. So uh, I'm going to let the discussion go till about uh, 11.35, so we have 17 or 18 minutes. There's a tradition here that we try to mix up uh, guests and press and students and so on from the LSE, and there's another tradition is that we try hard to achieve gender balance in the questions. So I'm going to run on that basis. So the very first question is a lady uh, with a hand up at the back there. Could you please identify yourself and keep the questions short so we can get as many in as possible? And I think I'll take three at a time in order to um, um, get as many in as we can. So please keep them short and say who you are. Thank you. Sure, thank you. So my name is uh, Silvia Pavone. I write for The Banker magazine, so you can imagine I am going to ask you about the impact of Brexit on the financial sector and in particular on banks. Thank you. Thank you very much. And gentlemen, just in front. Um, thank you, Craig Woodhouse uh, from The Sun. And Hell, I noticed you didn't mention uh, anything um, from the section in your report about the impact on net migration. Uh, I wondered if you could m mention that. And also to challenge you on whether this is actually a tax, because uh, Lord Stern mentioned this is a tax without revenue. It's also a tax that nobody is actually paying. Is it fair to uh, describe this as a tax? And, and if so, why? And could I have the next question, somebody who's not from the press? The gentleman, and, right, we also try to do equity on, on first floor, on the ground floor and first floor. Uh, Mr. Secretary General. Um, could you say who you are, please? Yes, um, Etienne Pichuki, I am a consultant and I've worked on a project with LSE before. Um, Mr. Secretary General, uh, Dr. Samson and Professor Stern, thank you very much for this presentation. Um, I think I am completely convinced economically that uh, Britain should stay in the, in the UK. Um, and because I am French, I also have a British passport, and my wife is Lebanese, uh, culturally and politically, I am also convinced. However, I am frightened by um, the, the, the opinion of the layman in, in the UK. And I'd like to ask you, how would you plan to convince uh, people outside this room, who I believe would be mostly in majority in favour of what, what you said, how would you convince the UK people to stay in the UK? Thank uh, you. In, in and, very uh, simple terms. So that I'm going to ask uh, Angel to comment on those three questions. Next time round, I'm going to be looking for um, students and two-to-one uh, women to men. But they, we'll go for these three first. How to convince them with the facts. How to convince him with objectivity, how to convince him with spelling out the consequences, second and third derivatives, what we did here today, but that is done in very great detail uh, in the uh, report that we just uh, gave out. Um, it, it spells out the different uh, vehicles, the different mechanisms, the different paths which lead to this negative uh, um, 
result rather than leave it to either intuition or emotion or perhaps in order to foster anybody's political careers or prospects. Uh, what is at stake is too high to hang anybody's political prospects you know, on it. Uh, it's, it's too important. Um, so I'd say objectivity, objectivity, objectivity. Facts, facts, facts. Not necessarily in that order. Hmm? Um, uh, let me now... Uh, Go to uh, the question of net migration. Oh, so why do you call it a tax? Well, because the question is, you would be less well off by, you know, 2,200 or uh, 3,200 to 5,000, etc., uh, in these cutoff dates than you would be in the baseline. That means remaining, okay? Now, to what do you attribute the fact that you are worse off to the decision of Brexit? And therefore, it acts like a tax, but as I said, without you getting the proper benefits, i.e. the services that you normally get when you are proposed to say we're going to increase the taxes because we're either going to provide you for better services or we're going to close the gap of the deficit and that in itself is a kind of a common good. However, in this particular case, as was suggested by Lord Cern a moment ago, not only do you, in net terms, not save your contribution to the EU, which is around 0.3 or 0.4, whatever it is, and, uh, but you basically end up in the red in that score on that particular account because you would have a drop in GDP, a drop in revenue, and therefore an increase in the deficit. So in that sense, also, it is a tax. Um, but uh, it, and, and it's, it's a good way to put it, simply because uh, it is a very uh, easy-to-understand notion that you would be out of something, you know, but not necessarily very clearly what it is that you're going to get. And we know what you're going to get, which is not good. Now, net migration, very simply, a question of facts again. Today, in the UK, you've created about, what, two and a half million jobs over the last 10 years? And mostly those jobs have been uh, occupied by uh, migrants who are contributing to, uh, you know, the taxes and the social security, et cetera, also to the productivity and the growth of uh, the UK. You have been, by the way, in the last few years, getting migrants at the tune of around a half a million per year. That is in our report. Half of them are from the EU. The other half are not from the EU. That means... They are part of your you know, selective policy of bringing in these migrants, and they have helped to do what you have done, which is do better on average than the EU has done in the last few years in terms of growth, job creation, etc. Now, we've also calculated, and this is something we've done systematically over time because we've been working on migration for 43 years now, 
on integration issues. And we've, this year we'll produce our 40th annual edition of the International Migration Outlook. It is net positive fiscally. The people who come in are willing to give more and actually give more than they take from the system and they contribute net to the uh, British economy. So uh, when we're talking about net migration, and there is a chapter about that, what we are afraid of is uh, that if, for whatever reason, there is a policy decision to limit migration rather than to manage it carefully and skillfully as you have been doing so far, there could be a net impact and you would not get the positive uh, results that you've gotten so far. Now, this is not part of the discussion, by the way, with the EU itself, because you've already successfully isolated that part by the negotiation that you undertook with the EU since last February. So this is not part of that. It's just it's an assumption about how the immigration issue would be dealt with. And now I go to the financial sector. Now, one of the great things that come together with the um, uh, belonging to the EU family is that you have what is called passporting rights to establish the financial institutions that have the vocation, the skills, and the competence to go to other markets. Such is the case of the British institutions. Britain is a very, very big power when it comes to financial skills, to financial sophistication, to financial services. And the access to the EU has been practically you know, a part of the whole expansion. And in fact, uh, the uh, part that uh, uh, finance plays in your total export of services, of uh, jobs, of investment, sophistication, etc., is very important indeed. And also because the services that Britain provides, not only to the British economy, but to the European economy and to the rest of the world, are absolutely critical for the productivity of Britain, but also of the rest of the world. You know, there are so many things that Britain is now providing, including financial services, I must say, uh, to uh, the rest of Europe. That access, which we today consider organic, totally natural, would be in jeopardy. One should not assume that it's going to remain. And remember all the forces of all the competitors of the financial system and the financial industry of the UK that would love to be without the competition of the financial institutions coming from the UK. But also, all the institutions from all over the world that have located in the UK, again, as I said before, to use it as a trampoline because you can find the talent, you can find the systems, you can find the support, you can find the logistics, etc., to do financial services out of uh, the UK. Um, when, what happens? Well, like any other investor, if I can't work out of the UK for a much broader 
clientele than the UK itself, I perhaps would take a hard look at whether I should either establish myself in the UK or remain in the UK if I'm already there. Again, the question of let's not take for granted the access uh, that we already have today because we would have to have a very hard negotiation with each one of the countries in order to get to where we are today. Again, why fix it if it ain't broken? Thank you. Now, I'm just going to be able to take uh, three more, three more uh, questions. Uh, uh, the lady just here, and then the gentleman at, at the front. And I'll, I shall take um, the gentleman in the short, short sleeve red shirt upstairs. So, lady here, this gentleman at the front, and then uh, this gentleman up here. And then I'm afraid we'll have to stop. So, um, yes, could you please say who you are? Thank you. My name is Adela Gooch. I've worked as a foreign correspondent based in Spain and then for the Foreign Office organizing international discussions. Uh, in conversations I've had over the past few weeks, I've been struck by the number of young people who doubt whether we should stay in the EU or not. They are beneficiaries of the EU in many ways. They include Erasmus scholars, people studying abroad. There are reasons why they about the nature of the debate here over the past few years. But a lot of the campaign, be it on the pro or on the anti uh, side, has been very negative. Uh, we've heard some very interesting economic arguments today, but I wonder if there is a way of framing this debate in such a way that we talk about what is good about staying in the European Union, not what is bad about leaving. What will be achieved for this generation in terms of prosperity and better life for the future if we remain in the EU. Thank you. Thank you. And the gentleman here, please, and could you tell us who you are? Hello. Um, my name is Richard Masu. I run a trade finance company. Um, your arguments and all the facts point out clearly why it is uh, extremely convenient for the EU, for the OECD, and for the international community, for the UK to remain in the EU. Um, I don't think the opposite is the case. But I am not going to dwell very long on the various points that have been made here, which I happen to disagree with very many of them. I just want to point out one single fact. Why nobody mentions the tremendous trade imbalance that the UK has with the rest of the world, with the EU. Why don't nobody mentions the deficit that the UK has with Germany, with France? Are they going to stop selling Mercs to this country? Is France going to stop selling champagne to this country? What happened if the, if the UK stopped buying their products? Are they not going to be willing to negotiate a trade agreement? Uh, Mr. Gurria, you are very knowledgeable on this subject. You've just come from Chile. Um, you know what Chile has done. has a significant trade imbalance with that, China. Ha have you given it's a, a deficit Sir, have and you has given a short question? free balances. Is that your question? My question is, why are you not saying the truth about the trade agreements when you have a deficit like the UK does have? Thank, thank you. Good. And uh, gentleman up there. Hi. Um, first of all, Mr. Gurria, well, my name is Samuel Gonzalez. I am a, a master's student here at the LSE. 
And my question is, why do you think that a lot of... Are you of Mexican? Yes, sir. Good. <laughs> why do you think that a lot of non-British uh, people around the world are giving their opinions about what British people should vote for during the refer referendum? And why do you think that, after listening to your remarks, uh, do you think that some people may vote out of fear of what's going to happen? Thank you. Okay. Um, the young people doubt, uh, although they are beneficiaries of the system, they have Erasmus. Um, and again, the, the young people are the most important target of this campaign of information, of facts, of uh, disseminating and the diffusion of the consequences, because it's about them. We owe it to them. The reason why we are here, the reason why we came to the London School of Economics in, in, in response to the invitation by Nick Stern, and the reason why we chose a place where most of the people are listening are students, is precisely because it's about them. Now, what you're suggesting is all the campaigns are about negativity. What will go wrong? Why don't we become more positive uh, about what would go right? Let me just say two things about that. First of all, because Brexit, as it has come to be known, um, has not too many good things about it. So you've got to denounce it. And there's a bunch of, well, um, fear that has been built around in order to support. And we have to take the pieces apart, decompose the thing, and then say, look at it. You know, Britain, look at yourself in the mirror naked. <laughs> Do you like what you see? Mostly, I hope you come out saying not too much. <laughs> but then you say, if you don't like what you see, there is a better way in which you are already committed. Why change the way? Now, there's also something which I mentioned and which is mentioned with some detail. In the last paragraph before the comparisons in the report, which says... You would be giving up all these things. You would be paying all these taxes. You would be incurring in all these costs. But you would also be giving up on the still to come many considerable things that are good that the EU will bring. And that is so important because by being a member, by being inside, as the UK has done so many times, you can influence the behavior. And by influencing the behavior, you align it more, not ideally, because there are 28, 29, who all have a voice, to the interest of the UK, because the UK is an important player, and because its voice is heard, and we just had a very good example last February. So these are the very positive things. It is, you know, look at all the things 
that after you remove the scaffolding, you are in awe of the building. You know, it's Il Duomo. It's Notre Dame. You know, it's... But in the meantime, there are three years of and dust and you, you know, you, you make the traffic go around the thing and there's a black scaffolding, etc., etc. But then you remove the scaffolding and you say, oh my God, you know, it's great. This is, this is what Europe is about. So, you know, why miss out on it? You're already there. You're already there. You're already benefiting from it and you can make it better by staying in there. Let me um, also say about the question of um, trade. <laughs> um, if you would only stay in relationships with which you have a surplus, you would get no relationships. Because the other guys would say exactly the same thing you're saying and say, why should I have a relationship with anybody who has a surplus with me? Basically... The question of productivity, the, pro- the question of competitiveness has to do with the fact that you are going to have deficits and surpluses depending on what you produce, how you produce it, how much it costs, uh, when, where, etc. This is what trade is about. You may even have a trade deficit and use a leverage of trade with its accompanying investment implications, etc. in order to profit. Why? Because... In many cases, you don't have maybe uh, you know, the natural endowments, the raw materials, whatever, but then you discriminate, you use your comparative advantages, and then you produce, well, in this case, for example, uh, uh, our uh, lady friend a moment ago from uh, the Bank of England said, uh, what about the financial services? Why is it that the UK is excelling uh, in financial services? Well, so... Imagine if all your colleagues would say, you have a surplus in the export of financial services, UK. I don't want to be your partner anymore because you are selling me too many financial services when they benefit from that. You know? So yeah, I think, but, uh, and, and I, I, I want to say that Chile is a very good example of uh, uh, a country that has really profited from leveraging its comparative advantages, but also perhaps depended too much on the price of copper and the bonanza of copper for too long. And what they're saying now is, let's diversify the Chilean economy. Um, well, uh, that's a, a big issue. So uh, let me now say, so, so having a deficit with Germany is having a deficit with France. You're in very good company. Everybody has a deficit with Germany. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so that should be a consolation. Um, now, um, the uh, question of British and non-British, basically, you're asking, my dear Paisano, why the dickens does a Mexican come here to tell the British what to do, okay? Uh, as as, as uh, some rather irreverent voices uh, told Mr. Obama, it's not, it's not uh, about interfering in domestic affairs. I have a duty. This is what the OECD does. We're always telling countries uncomfortable Truths. We're always saying what they should do in terms of policy. We, our motto is better policies for better lives. This is what we do. We don't lend money. We don't give grants. We talk to members about their policies. And we talk with about 100 
non-member countries in the world about their policies. They come to us for support and they come to us for advice. And therefore, I would say that we are now doing exactly what we do with any other momentous decision. I just came back from Chile, as our friend just mentioned, to discuss and mention very publicly about the regulatory framework. We delivered a big fat book saying all the things it should be doing about the regulation to make their economy more productive. We also told them that we did not particularly agree with the tack they're taking on their education um, uh, reform, uh, and, and particularly with uh, tertiary uh, education. Uh, and a number of other uh, things that we uh, recommended. And, of course, it doesn't make the people who have the responsibility uh, any happier, except for those who are pursuing reform. For those who are pursuing reform. For those who want to change the world for the better. For those who want to adopt the best practices. President Bachelet, when she came to negotiate accession of Chile to the OECD, said, this is not the club of the rich. It is the club of the best practices. So that, plus the fact that I have six of my closest members of the family that are British, and I care very much about their future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. You've already given your own thanks. In just one moment, I'll give my thanks. But I wanted to say two things. Um, copies of the uh, OECD report, um, this one, and of the speech are available outside. And the second is I wanted to take the advantage of the chair to respond to the very thoughtful question from lady just here. So what's to celebrate? Let me give you three examples. Um, and I'm not telling you how to vote. The first is the London School of Economics as a UK university and as an international university. We benefit enormously from our students from around the world, but because of the EU, it's financially and administratively much more attractive to come than it would be otherwise. And the United Kingdom, the LSE, academic life, the world benefits enormously from students being educated together like that. And of course, they, some of them will still come, but it will be more difficult, more costly, and uh, visa terms and so on more could be administratively more difficult. The second, and I say this personally as the son of a refugee from Nazi Germany, is that we have had peace largely, not totally, but we've had peace largely in Europe since the Second World War. And that's because of the many things, but one of them, one of them is the economic integration which the founding mothers and fathers sought at the time. Um, other reasons too, but that economic integration has been a very important part of peace in Europe so we celebrate academic life with others and as many, as a bigger mix as possible. We celebrate peace in Europe. And again, one more thing. Personally, we negotiated in Paris in December. I remember 8.30, December the 12th, 
last year we negotiated COP21. Thanks. <laughs> but we negotiated that as Europe, as Europe, and it made a very big difference to the outcome. Again, an outcome with many causes, but this was one very positive cause. So, university, academic life, peace, action on climate change, that's what is to celebrate. But today has been about economics, and we've had a very clear, strong, important statement from the OECD, of which the UK is a member, with a very long and uh, illustrious track record of economic analysis. And Angel, um, on behalf of all of us at the LSE, um, I'd like to thank you so much for the talk you gave today and for choosing the LSE as the place to come and make it. It's been uh, enormously informative and uh, a very important contribution. Thank you very much. <laughs>